Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Hosea. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the, wor- the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy in the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy in the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. May God encourage and strengthen his church through his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that strengthens and encourages and instructs us, Father, we would have no clue. We would have no clue into how we're to live apart from the work of your Spirit through his word. Guide us this morning. Guide us this morning. We pray for the fatherless. Pray that you would work in each of our hearts to consider how you are calling us to to care for the fatherless and It's beyond our ability to to fathom the number of orphans. It's beyond our ability to fathom how we can can change the the problems that exist in our world. And so we lay them all at your feet, our great and sovereign king. And we lay also our very lives at your feet, asking you to breathe life into us and instruct us in what we are to do. I pray that you would cause my speech to be right with you this morning. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Yesterday marked the 38th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, or the decision issued by the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade. January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court issued its decision stating that there existed a constitutional right for a woman to have 
and abortion. I'm going to have several things to say this morning about abortion. I'm going to have much more to say about adoption. Let me just begin, or before I begin, let me just say this. I know that there are many in here who have been affected by abortion in very profound ways. In a group this size, it would stand to reason that there are some who have had abortions or have encouraged others to have an abortion, perhaps even coerced someone into having an abortion, or perhaps a loved one or a family member has has chosen to do so. In fact, I believe it's a, it's a myth, it's a lie to say that abortion is about a, a woman's right to choose. Really, I believe abortion is about what a culture is going to allow to happen to the least of these. And a culture that allows abortion is also a culture that allows women to have forced abortions. My goal this morning is not to haunt anyone with their past, but instead to exhort us as a church to greater holiness and godliness. I just want to begin with those words of comfort and God's peace this morning. I also, though, want to begin by, by telling you uh, two stories. One is, is one that I read about on Wednesday evening. And I had read stories about this document before Wednesday evening, but the document was entitled, A Summary of Vital Statistics for New York City in 2009. It was basically a a document put out by a health department describing all sorts of different things about the state of health in New York City. The big headline-grabbing statistic from the article was this. In New York City, 40% of pregnancies end in an abortion. 40% of pregnancies in New York City end in abortion. That's a chilling statistic. I'd heard about that, but then on Wednesday I actually read the report, and what I read in the report was no more comforting. It was just as sickening and disturbing. I saw that in the report, apparently, women that are under the age of 20, well over 50% of their pregnancies ended in abortion. Even women ages 20 to 24, over 50% of pregnancies in that age group end in an abortion. The statistics are even more chilling when you look at the situation that minorities are in. For example, among non-Hispanic black women, among non-Hispanic black women, 60% of those pregnancies end in an abortion. I don't know what you want to call that. Genocide doesn't seem too extreme to me to describe what's taking place in segments of our population in this country. That's one thing that I read about on Wednesday. Another thing that I read after reading or right before reading that report was an email from the Hans. The Hans were one of the couples that came and gave their testimony this morning. Remember Michelle said that they had received a referral and accepted it this past week of this this little girl in China. So on Wednesday afternoon, I've read that report. I also opened up my email and read the story of how they're going to bring this little girl into their home. And I was able to open up a picture and see a picture of a little girl turning and and facing the camera with a great big, big smile on her face. And I was overwhelmed as I thought, that little girl is going to become a part of, of the Han family, Lord willing. And, and uh, 
even as exciting to me, just personally, I'm going to get to see that little girl, and she's going to become a part of, of, of my church family as, as we exist as a family together. That excites me to a degree I can't even begin to explain. As I saw that on my computer screen, I was literally overwhelmed. What do those two stories have in common? Let me suggest to you this morning that one is the antithesis of the other. In fact, if if you have your Bibles and can turn there quickly, let me ask you to turn to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's after the Gospels and Acts and Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians and Galatians. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is describing the reality of the believer. He says, you know, you who are believers used to be like the rest of the world, but now something different has taken place in your life. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're, they're alienated or separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But, he says in verse 20, there's something different about you. You've understood the gospel, and you've received new life in Christ. He goes on, he says this in verse 22. You are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on, and he gives various examples about how now as we believe, as We are believers, we put off who we used to be, the way that the Gentiles walk, and we put on something new. Let me suggest this. Many of you claim to be pro-life. And whenever you say, I'm pro-life, what you mean is this, I'm against abortion. I don't believe that abortion is is the right thing for our culture or for our society. I believe that it represents a a culture of death. And you rightly say, I'm against that. And you vote pro-life. And you you sign pro-life petitions. And you you put little bumper stickers on your car about abortion being murder. And and all those things are, are good in the sense that you're rejecting a culture of death. And I applaud you for that. But let me suggest this to you. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see that for the believer, it is not enough to reject the way of this world. We are not only to reject the ways that the Gentiles walk, we are to embrace, we are to embrace, what does he say? The new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. I want to call our church this morning to something more than being anti-abortion. What I want to suggest to you this morning, that for the believer, it is not enough to say, this is not the way that I want our culture to be. This is not the lifestyle that I'm going to embrace. I want you to see that God's word and God himself offer something far more profound to replace that which we reject. And I'm going to contend this morning 
that adoption is the heart of God. Not only is is God pro-life in the sense that abortion is wrong and murder, but God is pro-life in the sense that God is a God of redemption that calls people who are not his own to become his own and to be embraced into his family. I'm going to give you applications today and call you to something that will not you, you will not be able to fulfill this afternoon. In other words, you can't say, hey, love God's word, great sermon, got a couple minutes before the Bears game begins, let's go ahead and do what Daniel said to do, right? Or Packers game, depending on your affiliation. There is no Jew or Greek, Bear fan or Packer fan. But what I'm going to do this morning is issue a call to our church, a call that will not be met just today, not just this week, not this month or this year, not even this decade, but as long as the Lord tarries, as long as he gives us life, as long as he allows this church to exist, a call that profoundly changes the outlook of our church. It was a call that began in 2006 as we officially began an adoption ministry through Bethany Baptist Church. It is a call that continues today, and it is a call that is going to shape our church in profound ways until the Lord returns or takes us home or removes this church from existence. It is a call to pro-life, pro-adoption, rejecting a culture of death and embracing a culture of life. What we're going to see is that God calls his people not to destroy life, but to redeem it. And you and I are to be instruments of redemption. When it comes to children, that means being a church that advocates passionately adoption as we care for the orphan. We're going to do this as we look at the book of Hosea, but before we do that, I'm going to look at horizontal and vertical adoption in Scripture and give us some principles there. Again, what I want us to see is that God's people are to redeem life and not destroy it. Abortion, abortion destroys life. Adoption creates a family. Abortion severs relationship. Adoption unites them. Abortion squanders the opportunity for life. Adoption redeems life's potential. Let's look, first of all, then, at horizontal and vertical adoption in Scripture. And what I want to, I'm using a term here that I've heard a guy named Dan Kruver with Together for Adoption use frequently. By horizontal adoption, what I mean is this. In Scripture and in life, we see examples where people adopt other people, right? We adopt people who are not our biological children, and we call them our child. That's what I mean by horizontal adoption. Let me give you some examples in Scripture of horizontal adoption. For example, Genesis 48.5, Israel, or Jacob, says to Joseph, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you, they're now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh are mine. They are my children. Even though they were his grandchildren, he adopts them as his children and makes them part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And even today, the 12 tribes of Israel include Ephraim and Manasseh. They were as his own biological children. In the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, we see that Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses. She adopts Moses. Uh, He became, verse 10 of, of Exodus 2 tells us, he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. 
In Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, listen to what Ruth says to, or this is what Naomi says to Ruth. She says, uh, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. She's gone back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But listen to what Ruth says to Naomi. I believe this is a picture of horizontal adoption as well. Ruth says this, don't urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. We see this between Eli, or then in uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, as the women speak to Naomi after Ruth has had Obed as her child. They say that this Obed will be a restorer of life to you, Naomi, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Eli adopts Samuel into his household. In the book of Esther, Esther chapter 2, verse 7, Mordecai adopts his cousin Esther. It says that Mordecai took her for his own daughter. And in Scripture, we also see Joseph adopting Jesus to the point that it is assumed that Jesus is Joseph's biological son by some. That's horizontal adoption in Scripture. A person bringing into their family a child who is not their biological child and saying, this is my child. They are to me as a son or daughter. Also in Scripture, we see what we call vertical adoption. God adopting human beings. The relationship that he has with human beings being described in in terms of adoption. It's an image that he uses to describe this new relationship that exists between us and God. Remember that relationship between humanity and God is destroyed in Genesis chapter 3. There's that, that sin that enters the world through Adam's disobedience, Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so that relationship between God and humanity is, is severed. And because of that severing of relationship, the rest of the book of the Bible, could set, the rest of, the, of, the, of the, the story in the Bible can be said to be a story of adoption. God redeeming lost humanity and entering into a covenant relationship with them, into a familiar relationship with them. That's God's drive and passion for his glory to restore that lost relationship and bring them into his family. Genesis chapter 12. God tells Abraham that he's going to to bring uh, all the nations into relationship with him. He's going to bless all the nations through Abraham's descendants. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people this as he talks about God's covenant faithfulness to them. He says, the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more number, more number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so there's this break of relationship in Genesis chapter 3 because of sin. God works through his people Israel to redeem them, to cause them to be a treasured possession. And then as he brings us into relationship with them in the New Testament, we over and over again see this picture of adoption used to describe our relationship with God. Paul uses it frequently. In Paul's Greco-Roman culture, a person would be adopted into the, the family of a nobleman by that nobleman purchasing him three times out of slavery. And on that third purchase, he could declare that child, that daughter, that son to be his daughter or son. Paul uses this language in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul would say this in verse 15. He says, you did not receive, or verse 14, let's start there. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Of adoption. God has adopted you. He hasn't called you to be his slave. God has called you to be his son or his daughter. He says, you now, through the spirit of adoption, can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Verse 23, he says, not only the whole creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What's the point of that imagery? The point is this. Just as a person who's adopting a child does so excitedly and now has the opportunity both legally and emotionally and relationally to call that that little boy or that little girl their their son or or their daughter, just as there's excitement in that and, and intimacy of relationship, now God, who was separated from us because of our sin, has worked to redeem us and bring us back into relationship with him. So that we, through faith in Jesus Christ, can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. That's horizontal adoption in Scripture, and that's vertical adoption in Scripture. Now what I want us to do is look at the book of Hosea. And we're going to see a story that beautifully combines both that horizontal and the vertical aspect of adoption. If you haven't already turned there, turn with me, please, to Hosea chapter 1. And as we look at Hosea chapter 1, what we're going to do is we're going to see some, some truths about orphans and about adoption that I believe will shape the vision that our church has for orphan care and adoption for years to come. The first truth is this. There are orphans in the world because there is sin in the world. There are orphans in this world because there is sin in the world. Look what, ha- look what Hosea says in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Let me give you a little bit of the, the backstory to Hosea. You may remember that King Saul was the first king of Israel, and then King David followed King Saul, and then uh, King Solomon, uh, King David's son, became king. And then after King Solomon died, 
the kingdom in about 925 B.C. split. Ten tribes became part of the northern kingdom of Israel, and two tribes became part of the southern kingdom of Judah. So that was in about 925 B.C. All sorts of things happened in around kind of the, the late part of the 700s until about 725, Hosea enters the scene. This is a time in the nation of Israel and Judah's, the, the nations of Israel and Judah, where there's a time of, of great economic prosperity. There was kind of a, a revival of their, their uh, political and economic conditions. Things are going really well for Israel and for Judah. But it was a time, simultaneously, of spiritual poverty. And God calls the prophet Hosea to come on the scene and proclaim a message of God's coming judgment to the nation of Israel, that northern nation. And yet at the same time that he's proclaiming that message of God's judgment, he's proclaiming a message of God's redemption. Yeah, God's judgment is coming now, but that doesn't change the character of God. God is still a loving God who keeps his covenant promises and will redeem you. Even though God's judgment is coming, his redemption is coming as well. Now, how does God demonstrate through the prophet Hosea that message of God's unfailing redemption and love? Not in a way where you'd want to be Hosea. He tells Hosea in verse 2, take a wife who is a prostitute. That's his first duty as a prophet. Can you imagine that being your first assignment? God says, I want you to be a prophet. All right, God, I'm ready. What, who do I, you know, who am I judging? Who am I going to talk to? And God says, well, here's the first thing you do. Go find a prostitute and marry her. I'm sorry, God, what? Mary, who? A, a prophetess? A prostitute, what? God calls Hosea to take for himself a wife who is a prostitute, indicating Israel's spiritual condition when God brought them into covenant relationship with him. So Hosea does it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of give you an overview of this. We're not going to get into all this in the text. This isn't all in chapter chapter 1, but let me just give you an overview of Hosea's life here. Hosea does it, and things seem to go well between Hosea and his wife that he takes, Gomer, at first. She's faithful to him. They have this son, Jezreel, and then things start to go bad. We're not exactly sure when things started to go bad, but sometime after this first child was born, Gomer returns to her ways of unfaithfulness. And the second child, a daughter, is born, and this daughter is not Hosea's biological child. And then a third child, a son, is born, and this child is not Hosea's child. And eventually, despite Hosea's pleas, his entreaties, all his efforts to keep his wife at home and to show her his love for her, she abandons the family. And then in chapter 3 of Hosea, we see that God calls Hosea to go and buy back his wife. He's forced to bid on his own wife to redeem her from slavery. That's Hosea's life calling from God to show God's continued covenant faithfulness to Israel. Now, 
in the story of Hosea, sometimes what is forgotten or not paid as much attention to is we, we focus on Gomer and her sin and Hosea's faithfulness to her. And sometimes I believe we forget to focus on the children as well. Look at what we see in verse 7 or verse 6. It says that she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy in the house of Israel to forgive them at all. In Gomer's sin, in her abandoning of these children, these two children that she has through another man, she creates orphans. Sin creates real and tragic problems. As you think about horizontal adoption first, what I want you to realize is that there would not be orphans in the world if there was not sin. And I'm not saying just the sin of the parents. Oftentimes it's the, the sin of just being under Adam's curse where there's, there's sickness and there's death and there's separation from parents. If we lived in an ideal world, there would be no sin and there would be no orphans. That's true for horizontal adoption. Now, what's true for vertical adoption is if you and I were sinless, we would have no need for God to adopt us. We are orphans because we are sinners. We have been separated from God because of Adam's sin and our own continued deliberate sin. You are not going to be in the place spiritually to care for the fatherless until you understand your own depravity and your own dire need for God to come in and rescue you. There are orphans in the world because there is sin in the world. You are an orphan because of your own sin. There's a woman who gave me the permission to share this story in my book on orphan care ministry. She's talking about a decision she made to bring a child into her home with HIV and to adopt him. She was afraid, she says, at the beginning to say yes to adopting this child because of these reasons. Listen to what she says. She says, part of the reason why I was so afraid to say yes to our son was because I had this fear that he might not be perfect. You know, all parents want their children to be perfect. I know it's silly, but we do. We want everyone else to gush over our children, to say how cute they are, how they act like little angels, they're well-mannered, they're polite, they're respectful. We want them to be straight-A students, popular, well-rounded, athletic, strong. It's every parent's dream. She says, while viewing my child's files and the challenging circumstances he was coming from, I'm ashamed to admit that I was afraid Someone told me that we were taking on someone else's problem, and I was afraid, afraid that they might be right. God does not make mistakes, and God made our son. He brought him to his final form, and our son has suffered because of someone else's sin. But he's total, made in the image of God. We're not going to have that heart to care for the orphan until we recognize that we are orphans because of our own sin. We're not ready to do so until we recognize our own depravity and need for an adopted father. Now, here's the second truth I want us to consider, and, and, and hear me out because I don't want a, a bunch of people storming the stage upset at me here. 
Orphans are not your responsibility. Orphans are not your responsibility. What do I mean, I mean by that? We'll look at the text. Verse 8 says, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. In other words, uh, very shortly after this, this daughter, no mercy, was, no mercy was born, this daughter that was not Hosea's, uh, she very quickly has another child, and this child is also not Hosea's biological child. Listen to what God says. Verse 9, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, or lo ami. Lo means not ami, my people, lo ami, not my people. That's his name. Can you imagine that being your name? What's your name? Uh, not my people. Mom and dad had issues. He says, uh, call his name, not my people, because you are not my people. And I am not, literally, it says, I am not yours. What Hosea is saying is, look, this child is not my child. He is making a, a legal and real declaration. God is making a similar declaration to the people of Israel. You are not my people. Hosea's life and God's relationship with Israel are mirrors of one another. You're not my people, Israel. This child is not my son, Hosea is declaring. Hosea is saying, I have no responsibility for bringing this child into the world. He, he is not my responsibility to care for and provide for, legally. Now, here's the theological, that's horizontally, vertically, what we need to understand is this. God is under no compelling reason, God has no compelling force causing him to adopt us. There's no force out there in the universe that's kind of saying, hey, God, you need to take care of these people. There's nothing compelling God to do so externally. God's desire to care for us as orphans is all internal, driven by a desire for his own glory and passion because of his love for us. What's the point? The point is this. You can make many valid excuses as to why you're not going to care for the orphan. The orphan is not legally your responsibility. As you hear about the orphan, as you hear about the fatherless, you can, like Hosea, rightly declare, not my people, not my problem. In fact, there's a movie called Hotel Rwanda that describes the genocide that occurred in the, the country of Rwanda during the the, the 1990s, between the Hutu and the Tutsi, and, and just that, that terrible genocide that took place. And there's a great scene in the movie where the, the hotel manager is saying, look, to the, journal, the American journalist saying, look, just get our story out. If you get our story out, the public outcry in America will be so great, a relief from the outside will come. And the journalist says this, look, if we broadcast your story, you know what will happen? People will be watching the television news and they'll say, oh my, how horrible, change the channel and continue eating their dinner. When he said that in the movie, my heart broke because that is exactly what I did when I saw the stories coming out of Rwanda in the 1990s. You and I can say the orphans are not my people. The fatherless, not my people. You and I have, as a church, we have no legal obligation from the state to care for the fatherless. But, Look at what happens next. The third, the third truth I want us to think about is this. God's people 
are passionate about bringing children into the family of God through adoption. Verse 10, so he's just said, you're not my people, I'm not your God. Yet, he says in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. There shall be unity here and they shall go from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Therefore say to your brothers, you are my people and your sister, you have received mercy. And we see at the end of of chapter 2, we see this in Romans 9 as well, God looks at people who are not his people, and he declares, you are my people. Brothers and sisters at Bethany Community Church, is that your passion? Do you have a drive, a thirst within you, like God has redeemed you to say to people who are not our people, to cry out and say, my people Is there a joy within you as you see children brought within our walls to call them ours, to call them part of us, to enter into the the covenant relationship with them with great joy? Is that a drive, a passion within you to be able to say to not my people, you are my people? To be able to say to the world that rejects children and rejects the orphan and says you're not welcome here is our goal as a church to cry out, with a unified voice, the orphan is welcome here. God's people. God's people are passionate about bringing children into the family of God through adoption. And Hosea, as his life and God's his life with these children and God's life with Israel are parallel. Hosea brings these children into his home and God brings Israel back to him. God is going to bring children into his family. It's an act of God through the suffering of Christ. Through faith in him, we become part of this new family. You know, as we think about orphans not being our responsibility, it's very humorous to me to, to sometimes think about how people view their lives and how we view God's will for our life. Now, we have no revelation on the matter, no specific revelation on the matter concerning what God wants us to do with our, our, our finances or our time. And it's very interesting to me how quickly people assume what God's will for their life is. You know, I, I believe that God's will for my life is to have a very healthy and comfortable retirement. I mean, maybe, but where are you, where, where are you, where are you getting that from? I believe that God's will for my family is for me to have 2.5 children because that's what everyone else around me has, and, and I don't want to, to inconvenience my biological children. I think that's God's will for my life. Maybe, but really? Where's your source for that? Let me suggest to you that God wants to call you to do hard things for the fatherless. It's not enough for us as a church to say we're against abortion, we're rejecting this culture of death, and and anything that has to do with this culture of death, we vote against it and we don't like it, and bad, bad, bad. Now, it is. It's horrible. It's reprehensible. 
to have a culture that embraces death to the, cult, to the degree our culture has. But at the same time, we as believers offer a competing vision, a competing kingdom. And in this, in this competing kingdom, we are not so enslaved with material things and, and, and our own prestige and our own conceptions of what our families should look like. We are instead focused on life. And we, as a community of faith, call out to the world through our actions and our passions, the orphan is welcome here not my people are our people by the grace of God. I'm, I'm probably going to go a little bit long here, and, and I don't care. But please apologize to the children's workers for me. How are you going to support adoption? Clearly, God has not called everyone in this room to adopt. God has called all of us, however, to care for the orphan. And I believe the ultimate manifestation of our care for the orphan, the goal that we work for in all our orphan care, is, is to bring them into a family. Let me suggest to you, if you're going to rightly be pro-life, you are going to be pro-adoption. You're not going to simply vote against abortion. You're going to, through your voting with your, your life and your finances and your resources, to support the bringing home of children into Christ-centered families. Our church has to manifest that message in numerous ways. If you're a young family, perhaps God is calling you to open up your, your heart and your home to a, another, another child. If you're a middle-aged or a little older family, even still, perhaps God is calling you to adopt. Or perhaps God is calling you to financially support another couple who's adopting. Or, or maybe you're a little bit older and, and, and you say, you know what, there, there's no way. I, you know, I don't know how many more. I might have five more years or five more minutes. I don't know. Things aren't going so well. You know what, God? God may be saying, you know what, I'm placing you in this family so that you be, can become a grandma and a grandpa to a whole bunch of children. That you can, can walk down the halls and see these children and you can be this this. A constant source of encouragement and joy. And I tell you, as, as I see the children come down our halls and see people who aren't their biological grandparents or parents coming and loving on them and hugging them, that's what our church is supposed to be about when we say that we are a church of pro-adoption, welcoming biological and non-biological children into this, this community of faith. That's the vision. You know, it's going to affect our church in profound ways over the coming years. It's going to cause our children's church and our Sunday school church not to be this cookie-cutter Sunday school. It's going to cause some, some uncomfortable situations. It's going to cause some of your biological children to, to face some uncomfortable circumstances. And what we're saying as a church is we are more than okay with that. We rejoice in that. What it means for us as a church as we, we look at the land out there that we purchased, it means we're not just purchasing this land so we can put up this nice building and have this, this great church and, and look all great and everything. We're going to be a, a church that focuses on the needs of the disenfranchised and the most needy among us as we build a building. Our children's wings and our children's ministries are going to require more than your typical a church because there's just so many proportionally children. And you know what we're going to say? Wonderful. Praise God for that. Two competing visions for culture. Two paths that exist for the people of this world. I want to read a, a memo, and uh, please don't interpret more into this than what I'm saying. Uh, 
let, let me read it and then, and then clarify. This memo was dated September 1st, 1939. It says this, uh, Bueller and Dr. Brandt, MD, are charged with the responsibility of enlarging the authority of certain physicians to be designated by name in such a manner that persons who, according to human judgment, are incurable, can, upon a most careful diagnosis of their condition of sickness, be accorded a mercy death. Signed, A. Hitler. Now, please, listen to what I'm saying. I'm not accusing pro-choice people of being Nazis. What I am saying is this. The culture of abortion, I believe, has the same demonic origins as what led the euthanasia of 5,000 children in Germany that eventually led to death camps. Beginning in September of 1939, children who had defects were killed. They'd be transferred to hospitals. Parents would be told they're improving, receiving improved care. Some parents sent them there, and then these children would be killed. They'd been told they'd, the parents would be, some of them would be told they died of pneumonia. Incurables must be done away with, and Adolf Hitler said this, and the people around him said this. Look, it's, it's sad that this is happening. Ideally, this wouldn't take place. Here's the logic, but it's for the greater good. We need these hospital bed, beds for soldiers, and so in terms of what's the greatest good for our society and our culture, we're going to do away with incurables. There's nothing we can do, so we're going to grant them mercy deaths. That's the logic. It's better for society to do away with these people. Now, let me read to you some quotes, and you tell me whether or not there isn't the same underlying logic in this culture of death in our own country. This is from an article entitled, Why Abortion Improves Society, by a man named Nathan Newman. He takes to task those who say abortion should be rare and, and makes, make it about a woman's right to choose. And he says this, and he's pro, pro-choice. He says, if abortion is never a good thing, why should anyone ever have the option to have one? He says, uh, we need to say, declare that abortion, however sad an option when used, is necessary to improve the quality of life and the quality of women in our society. Another part of our, of our rhetoric should be every child should be a wanted child. We need to acknowledge the fact that great harm is done when parents raise children they don't want, often because they know the stresses of their life make raising children untenable. Pro-choice progressives should embrace arguments that show that the legalization of abortion leads to drop in crime rates a generation later. Children that are less likely to be abused, or wanted children are less likely to be abused and less likely to end up as criminals when they grow up. Abortion is not just some individual decision with no effects on broader society. Abortion is critical. Abortion is critical to the equality of women and whether unwanted children are forced on parents is bound to have effects not just on those families but on our communities. Those in favor of abortion rights have to argue that overall we have a better society because abortion is legal than if abortion was criminalized. Abortion is a choice between two visions of creating a a good society, and we progressives are arguing that our vision is more profoundly just and the moral alternative. Two views of how society should be. And this person says, look, we have to acknowledge that, that there's life here and there's some moral dilemmas, but this is a better society. Because all, all children will be wanted children. 
brothers and sisters, it's not enough to reject that. As repulsive as it is, it's not enough to simply reject that vision of reality. Instead, we must embrace the vision for a culture in which every child is welcomed into a home, every child that we can provide for. I also read this week about a, a man, uh, about a man, uh, his name was uh, Harold Cassidy, a lawyer, a very pro-choice lawyer, and he was trying to, to advocate the pro-choice uh, position. One time a, a couple came to him, and they said, we'd like you to sue a doctor for us. He said, well, what's the, what's the basis of the suit? We said, they said, well, wrongful birth. Well, those doctors didn't tell us that our child would have Down syndrome, and so we'd like to sue them. Cassidy said that he was just struck to the heart about the absurdity of the pro-choice position, and so he began to defend the rights to life of, of children and, and talk about the effect of abortion on, on women as well, and said that years later he was at an ice cream vendor, and he asked for some ice cream. The ice cream vendor gave him his ice cream. He looked at him funny, and he tried to give the ice cream vendor the, the money, and the ice cream vendor refused his money. He said, why? He goes, well, you know, I'm one of the parents that tried to get you to to sue for wrongful birth and talked about how he couldn't believe that he'd ever made such an absurd statement. He says, our daughter is a source of immense joy to us and we can't even fathom who we used to be. Our church, our church on the Sanctity of Life Sunday, is a church that rejects the message of death. But I want to call us to something much deeper. We not only put off the culture of death, but we as a church offer a vision for a culture of life. A culture in which we as a community of faith say to not my people, our people, come, we want you, we desire you. We desire to call you our own. And more importantly, someday God to call you his own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for life in his name. We thank you that you have adopted us. And as your people, we are now passionate about calling others to faith in you. We pray this. It would be true of our church, that we would be faithful to care for the fatherless. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.